Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Galatians. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, in the book of Galatians, we left off right at the, uh, toward the end of chapter 3. This argument, of course, begins at chapter 3, verse 1, with, O foolish Galatians, and continues on through 4, 11. And of course, what Paul has been doing is tying the pastoral circumstances at hand back to the story of Abraham and then teaching us many things tangentially along the way. But the key here, of course, that Abraham was justified by faith prior to circumcision or any of the other works of the law. And this always, at least here in Galatians and in Romans, serves a twofold purpose in Paul, and these kind of overlap somewhat, and that is that we are justified by faith, just as our father Abraham, and apart from any works of the law, circumcision, of course, or any others, And that this justification given to Abraham prior to circumcision means that Abraham is, at least in that sense, a Gentile. And so justification by grace through faith to all people, Jew or Gentile, aside from circumcision, aside from law observance, etc., is what God has had from the beginning. All right, well, that leads to at least one major question. Why did God give the law? If God gave this promise that we would be saved in the faith of Abraham, that is, believing that God would send his offspring, that is, offspring in the singular, Christ, who would come and through him all the families of the earth, whether Jew or Gentile, whether circumcised or not, would be blessed, then why would God ever give the law 430 years later? And the answer to that, as we saw last week, is in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come, reference to Christ, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, etc., etc. And Paul's point here is that the covenant of the law through angels and a mediator is inferior than that, uh, to that covenant which was established by God directly to Abraham, and thus by extension directly to all Christians who are sons of Abraham by sharing the faith of Abraham. So, in the first place, the law comes on account of transgressions. Um, Is the law then to be understood in a way contrary to the promises of God? Did God change his mind? Was he doing a new thing? Was he annulling what had previously happened in order to establish something different? By no means, St. Paul says. Certainly not. Verse 21, the second of the questions he asks and answers. 
If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed have been by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith. Now, this is where it gets very abstract. And we talked at the end of the class period uh, last time about this. And I'll simply bring it up again here that in the argument Paul's making in chapter 3, 1 through 4, 11, he's using Abraham as his frame. He could go back further. He could go back to Noah. He could go back to Adam and Eve. He's choosing Abraham for a reason, and he's kind of framing his theological discussion within that mode. Now, what he's doing here in 23, and this is and following, it's really important for you to see the way he's framing this. Otherwise, it's going to lead you into all kinds of wrong conclusions. When he says, before faith came, does he mean before Abraham? No. Does he mean before Noah? No. He means before the offspring comes, the revelation of the one in whom we have faith. All right, so that's what he's talking about. Before faith came, before the offspring, Christ, and that's the previous line, faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so before faith came, came, we were held captive under the law. Now, who's the we? It would only be from the time of Moses forward. Prior to that, there was no law under which they were captive. So, Paul is setting up a frame in which the before is the time of the law and the after is the time of faith in Christ. Now, we can draw all kinds of wrong conclusions here. Like, the before, in the time of the law, man was justified by the law, and now that Christ has come, man is justified by faith. But that's not at all in keeping with what St. Paul has just said. Again, go back to 21. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So, He's not arguing that there are different salvific dispensations. He's not arguing that, hey, it used to be from the time of Moses to Jesus that you did have to earn your way into heaven by doing the law. That's not what Paul's saying. Nor is Paul saying that, hey, in the time of Moses, you were saved not by faith. You were saved by some other means, works of one form or another. That's not what Paul's saying either. So, by paying careful attention to how Paul is framing things, why he's framing things, and the larger text and those things he's precluded from our thoughts, we can come to see then the very narrow kind of compare and contrast he's making. Okay? We've noted here also the kind of chronological language in 23, now before faith came. Obviously, faith existed before Christ. So, see what he's doing in terms of the technical use of the framing and language. You have a same thing show up back in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until. So, you see the chronology being marked by the word until in 19 and the word 
before faith came in 23. What Paul is doing is he's showing us two different epochs, the epoch under the law and the epoch now revealed in Christ Jesus, who has set us free from the law. Does that make sense? Okay. If you go back to uh, chapter 1, and again, verse 3 and 4, I bring this up because as we progress along with Paul's thought, if you want to be thinking like Paul, not just kind of stamping our modern theological opinions on top of Paul, if you want to be thinking like Paul, we always have to return to this verse to to be reminded of what he's doing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we are being delivered by the death of Jesus from this present evil age. There's this movement from the present evil age to that which is to come. We're going to see this kind of until and before this language of transition increase as we move along with the thought here of Paul. So before faith came, with the preceding line being faith in Jesus Christ, you can see this This is essentially before Christ himself came or was revealed, we were held captive under the law, from Moses to Christ would be a way of saying that, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So, again, in terms of what's objectively true, people from Moses to Christ were looking for the Messiah. That's evident. When Jesus showed up and was declared to be the Messiah, nobody said, the what? The who? So everybody's looking for a Messiah. So so Paul's point isn't like, hey, this was a time of works righteousness, not faith. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point was during the epic of the law, we were bound and imprisoned to keep the law. It was given on account of transgressions. And you can take that any number of ways. Paul isn't specifying here. He does more so in Romans than he does here. But there's this epic of God's people waiting on the Messiah, being under the law, and then being set free from the law. And here we're viewing, you know, as Paul's going to make very clear at the end of his argument, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, he's going to say, state outright that this is um, the observance of days and months and seasons and years, the ceremonial aspects of the law here. All right, so 24. So then the law was our guardian our pedagogue until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the analogy being used here is, you know, the the potter familius, the head of the household, would give his children to a pedagogue, a guardian, who would teach them and instruct them until they came of age and were adults themselves. And then they received the full inheritance as sons, and as sons were masters of the house uh, with authority. So Paul's saying effectively the same thing. For a time we were under a pedagogue, namely the law, 
until Christ came. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under a pedagogue. We're full-fledged sons with our own authority. And he's going to flesh this argument out in chapter 4. So, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that is the transition so that when you go back to the beginning of Galatians, you see that he is delivering us from this present evil age and making us into a new creation, language that's going to come out as we develop along with Paul in the epistle. This is the source of that new creation for us. And note what he does. He puts faith and baptism not in antithesis to one another, not against one another, but aligned with one another, parallel with one another, one with one another. Again, the latter, oh, just verse 26, the latter part of his statement here. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Faith or baptism? Yes. <laughs> faith and baptism. They're always put together in the scriptures. So, you're sons of God through faith. And then as many of you as were baptized into into Christ. Remember Paul's thinking in Romans 6, to be baptized into Christ is to be so united with him that what? You're buried with him and raised with him. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. Now, that's so important to understanding that Romans 6 thought because Romans and Galatians are in many ways parallel to each other in terms of the argument. Galatians is just a pastoral occasion. Romans less less so. But do note, do note that it is the death of Christ, Christ who gave himself for our sins, that delivers us from this present evil age. When you're baptized into Christ, you're delivered from this present evil age. You move from uh, one who is under a uh, a pedagogue to a full son of God. You move from a denizen of the old evil age to having been baptized into Christ and putting on Christ and being clothed in Christ and thus becoming a new creation. How do we know a new creation? Because verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So hearkening back to that which preceded the law. All right, Paul goes on to develop his thought and um, I think largely analogy here in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. How so? The child has no legal rights, just a slave has no legal rights. A child is under orders, just as a slave is under orders. Okay. 
though he is owner of everything. The child is, because he is an heir, owner of everything, but he's not able to exercise that at the time. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers. That's the same idea of the pedagogue. Until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's doing a lot here. And it's complicated. It's not categorically, perfectly clean and neat. But nonetheless, he drives his point home if we pay attention to the framing that he's using. Okay, so again, he carries on with this analogy of a child who's no different than a slave while he's young, but when the time comes, he comes out of that and exercises the full rights of what he already is, a son. Okay, verse 3 then explains the the parallel. In the same way, we also, when we were children, that is, when we were under the law, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here, what is elementary principles of the world? That's going to be the ceremonial aspects of the law. You might even say, if you want to bring in the moral aspects of the law, it might be the law wrongly understood as something which justifies. Because then that is a use of the law that's really no different than the use of pagan religions. Pagan religions, you end up doing X, Y, and Z in order to please God. If the law is crassly and wrongly understood, then you do X, Y, and Z in order to please God. So we're going to see this elementary principles of the world recur in a way that's challenging. But I would simply point you out, point uh, to you the study note on four three. When you get to the elementary principles, the description is given, depicts the condition of slavery to which both Jews and Gentiles were subject prior to Christ's coming. The Jews to the law and the Gentiles to their pagan way of life. Okay, In a sense then, too, another possible read on this is that this is less a slavery to the law as self-justification or slavery to pagan gods by way of self-justification, but more just a slavery to sin. Okay, How does that fit the context even better? Well, if you go back to uh, verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So this idea of being imprisoned and imprisoned under sin and the law simply just revealing sin more and more. Okay, so I'm just trying to give you the way in which these verses can be understood and read. The most challenging being the elementary principles of the world because there seems to be kind of a Jewish side of that coin and a Gentile side of that coin 
we're going to see the Gentile side of the coin come up in verse, what would it be, 9. So just keep in mind the elementary principles of the world. But if all of this is starting to, you know, make your eyes roll back in your head or glaze over or whatever the expression may be, go back to the basic frame that Paul has given us. Think of the present evil age and deliverance from it. That present evil age is going to be for the Jew under the law, for the Gentile under paganism. Okay, so that's the age. Now, Christ came and Christ died in order to set us free from this present evil age. So those things are the elementary principles of the world that have been put behind us. For the Gentile, his paganism. For the Jew, his legalism, for lack of a better word. Thus, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, came born of a woman, stating here very much his humanity, born under the law, the fact that he is a Jew, to redeem those who are under the law. Um, That's the purchasing language of the agora, the marketplace. So that we might receive adoptions as as sons. Okay, adoption as sons. And we see things sh- uh, like shifting as the argument goes along. And because you are sons, not here, God has sent the spirit of his son. This is a verse that later plays in the controversy between the East and West over the filioque, um, that line in the creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son, and the son is filioque. Okay? The, this verse has role because the Holy Spirit is here called the Spirit of the Son. And so this would be an argument in favor of the West and the Filioque, which we confess every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. There's a wrong way to understand that and a right way to understand it. We're understanding it the right way. The Spirit um, proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the Spirit of the Son comes into our hearts The spirit of the Son cries out, Abba, Father. And then seven is where things shift. So you are no longer a slave. He probably technically means here a child no different than a slave, but because he's hurried and impassioned, it full-on shifts. Like if you really trace the argument, he has never said we were a slave before. So you either note a shift or you note shorthand. He's saying a child as if a slave. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, obviously, this first argument seems to be much more oriented toward the Jewish Christian, although maybe not exclusively so. And then, likewise, what follows will be much more oriented toward the Gentile Christian, although perhaps not exclusively so. So let me get there. Let me close out the argument, and then we'll pause and see if you want to go back and sift through any of this. So then verse 8, formerly, and again, look at the kind of 
chronological distinction he's been making. It's just like until or before or formally. So formally, when you did not know God. Now, would any Jew say that they didn't know God? That'd be hard. So it's a pagan here in view. Formerly, when you did not know God, a Gentile, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You're worshiping false gods. Again, that would hardly be true for a Jew. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So here he's saying like, look, no more can a Jew go back to the ceremonies of the law than a pagan could go back to his paganism. What's happened is that by the death of Christ, we have been taken out of this present evil age. We have been baptized into Christ. The fullness has come. Whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, you're a son through faith. You're a new creation. You don't go back to the old ways of the law. You don't go back to the old ways of paganism. So then you can see that, you know, roughly speaking, 4, 1 through 7, and then 8 through the rest is going to... uh, be roughly parallel with Jew and Gentile. Roughly. So, once more at verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Let me see quick if there's a study note on nine. Yeah. Here's a here's a little bit of a different take. So know God or be known by God. The initiative always belongs to God, obviously. Paradoxically, knowing God is a purely passive experience. And then weak and worthless elementary principles. So that's the second time we've had this phrase, elementary principles. Here's what the editors say. Seeking salvation through obedience to Jewish laws places a person under the elementary powers of this evil age, with reference to verse 3. So again, they're seeing this as a kind of self-justifying, like religious impulse, um, what the Lutherans sometimes call the opinio legis, this idea that fallen man just has to justify himself and does so via the law, if given the law, or via the pagan deities and sacrifices if given the pagan deities and sacrifices. As such, and I think it makes some sense, this present evil age is a matter of trying to negotiate your way with powers greater than you, divine powers greater than you, and trying to make that work and acting as though your way of doing it is the only way that you're going to be blessed in this life, you know, this quid pro quo. If I scratch the deity's back, he'll scratch mine, and then that will be in this life and in the next. And Paul then is putting the kibosh on all of this, saying that by the death of Christ, the 
this present evil age has been put away, and in Christ Jesus, through faith and baptism, you've been made a new creation. Okay. Let's pause there. Let's see. Um, let's see what you think. Please, if you have a comment, oh, go right I ahead, and then we'll. Okay. Uh, this might be kind of off the subject, but what do you think of the fact that there was no, virtually no conversions to Judaism, uh, except for a few? And the prominent one, I think, was Ruth. Uh, and of course, she converted when her when she went back with her mother-in-law. And she became uh, grandmother to David, King David, which is in the line of Jesus. Uh, and I think the old Jews would look back and go, oh, my gosh, our, our, uh, it's been polluted. Our, our lineage has been polluted here by a Moabite. <laughs> you know? uh, but to me, looking back, the Gentiles were kind of brought into the race at at maybe at that time. Do you think that's valid at all? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. I mean, certainly it would trouble those who see their identity in, in Abraham as purely a biological one. Right. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. And, you know, a place that I certainly skipped over rather fast, but I think you could say that of any number. I mean, this is very so typical of Paul. You've got these like big, huge expressions that you could launch off on a 20-minute long digression, but they really don't help you. If Doing that doesn't help you understand his argument as he marches along. But another place that we could go and pause and discuss would be at verse 28 so of, of chapter 3. As you have come to faith, you've become a son of God. As you've been baptized into Christ, you've been clothed in Christ. This is your identity. As such, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So what exactly, I mean, what is Paul saying? Well, what distinguishes between a Jew and a Greek? The law, the ceremonial keeping of the law. So uh, otherwise, a Jew's no Jew. That's, and that's what's so hard and so scandalous is, well, of course they have to be circumcised, otherwise they're not with us. They're not, they haven't been grafted in, you know, would maybe be the argument. And that's not the point. The point is, if you're in Christ, you're grafted in. So, this idea of what even separates the Jew and the Greek is the law. And so, I think that that's foremost, but not only is that gone... But because our identity in the new creation is in Christ, then there's neither slave nor free. There's, no, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So this has a view to that new reality which is instantiated. Now, does that mean, I mean, and this is an interesting point, because everything that Paul says in this entire section can be attacked or criticized or somehow mangled into a false teaching. Does this therefore mean that there is literally no male or female? We're all now to believe ourselves to be genderless, sexless, whatever, new creations in Christ. Clearly not. Clearly not even by the end of this epistle, let alone the whole teaching of the scriptures. So is that what Paul's interested in doing? No. 
there's a sense in which we have moved on to this new age and era in Christ and everything has been made new. Now, he's going to lay out and define, okay, what does this new life in Christ look like? But the first thing is that the distinctions of this present evil age are not what's essential. What's essential is that you be in Christ. What's essential is that you be baptized into him and thus put on Christ. And in so doing, then, you become Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. But we'll see other places where Paul very clearly upholds slaves and uh, the role of slaves, where he very clearly upholds the roles of males versus females, etc. So we have to ask, like, what's Paul's point in making this up and make sure we don't fall short of that point or go too far with his point. Okay, so that's um, yet another place we could we could talk. Please. I, as I hear this, and the whole book of Galatians seems to be focusing on the argument uh, relative to losing your salvation or walking away from your faith. And, uh, you know, there are denominations, I believe, in the Christian that say one you know once saved always saved and here it seems to lay out a very strong argument and uh, that you can lose your faith you can push God away and is this what I understand do I understand that correctly here that he's he's really saying you, you guys knew the faith and now you're walking away from it so yes he says um, in fact he's he's going to say, uh, you have uh, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So that's all where this is all driving. I mean, virtually every epistle, if you can't fall away from the faith, is a waste of ink. Yeah. Right? I mean, why, why would you bother warning anyone about anything if you can't possibly fall away? And Paul's going to be very explicit about that. And even the language, you have fallen away from grace, means what? You once had it. If you didn't have it, you haven't fallen away. You never attained to it. But clearly you did attain to it, and now you've fallen away from it. Yeah, the once saved, always saved, we can't do. I was going to say, where did that ever come from then, with all the ink spilled, so to speak, (laughs) on on the fact, stay in the faith, contend for the faith in Jude, you know, and so forth. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, where, okay, so where it comes from to be as charitable as possible is it comes from a desire to uphold monergism, that we are saved by grace through faith, by God's doing alone. And just this kind of idea of if it's God's doing, we can't undo it. And so either God saved you and he's going to continue to save you and once saved, always saved, you're in. And that's because he's predestined you before the foundation of the world, so you can't do anything about it. Or if you did fall away, you must. You can't actually fall away. It must mean you were never predestined in the first place. You never had faith in the first place, so God must have predestined you to hell. So it really unfolds out of this desire. And there's, there are shifting and different nuances and forms that this thing takes, but it comes from this desire to hold on to monergism, even at the expense of other biblical truths. We, can, we as Lutherans affirm and uphold monergism, but we just recognize that there's mystery involved there where God sometimes allows himself to be rejected and man can refuse his gracious purposes and 
fall away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just self-evident in the scriptures. Uh, what's not, the other thing may be self-evident if you're trying to build a rational system. You know, if you're building a rational system that God predestines, then the idea of falling away kind of becomes that God predestines some to heaven and some to hell, and that's it. The idea that you fall away then becomes problematic. It doesn't fit your logical system. But we're not building a logical system. We're trying to have the same faith that the scriptures have and confess that faith, even if we have to at certain places say, well, there's a mystery here. God doesn't reveal to us what precisely the dynamic or rationale is. We just see that it's self-evidently the case. Self-evidently the case that Paul was concerned that the Galatians who once had grace had now fallen away from grace. Okay, let's, um, well, let's acknowledge here at the end of verse 11 that this is, in some ways, the end of an argument. I, I mean, I don't think in some ways. I think it's pretty definitively the end of an argument that started in 3.1 with, Oh, foolish Galatians, and now he says, I am afraid I have labored for you or labored over you in vain. And now with verse 12, brothers, we move on to a different section and a different argument. Obviously, it's related, but it's just a different argument. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, Paul is saying, I became as you are in order to save you, okay? A Jew to the Jew, a Greeks to the Greeks, etc., But now he's saying, become as I am, that is, have my mind and opinion about this, that being circumcised and following the law is not necessary for salvation. He goes on, you did me no wrong, which isn't clear in itself, but becomes clear as we mosey through Paul's line of thought. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So it seems to be the case that Paul was sick or ill or injured, whatever the case may be, that this gave occasion for him to preach to the churches in the Galatians and that they were well aware of this. Okay, what is this bodily ailment? Nobody knows. You can write a PhD in theology on it if you want. Add your own thoughts. So, you can look at the study note on verse 13 of chapter 4. Numerous suggestions have been offered. For example, malaria, epilepsy, eye ailment. Since the ailment was the cause of Paul's original visit, perhaps it required rest and recuperation and thus a stay in Galatia. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, I mean, either in the sense that it was grotesque or in the sense that they viewed it as a curse or in the sense that maybe they had to care for him, it's hard to say. But anyway, it was a trial to them. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, This is one of the places where angel is ambiguous because angelos can just mean messenger, so a messenger of God. That's probably what's in view here, but safe translation is an angel of God. And I don't know if it means like like an actual angel, you know, the way we think of them. Um, You receive me as an angel of God. It certainly still fits the rhetoric, so I'm not... 
I'm not precluding it necessarily, just letting you know the full scope of data there. So, he received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is why some people think that what, that what Paul's suffering from is an eye ailment or injuries to his eyes from some persecution. Uh, and that this may you know, be a scandal to them. Who knows? If we were to put this in idiom, I think the saint says, like, like, give me your right arm. or so, I would have given my right arm. You would have given me your right arm if you could. So idiomatic expression. So what is Paul doing? He's recalling the tenderness with which they received him, the tenderness with which he reciprocated preaching the gospel to them, this mutual relationship of love they had. And then verse 16, he drives home his point. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I mean, I imagine this is spoken and heard in incredibly tender tone. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, they being here the persecution, or persecution, (laughs) the circumcision party. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So Paul says, look, this is all their own ego trip. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. They're making much and trying to woo you away into falsity. If, I'm, if I would be accused of making much and, and accused of the same thing, it would be for a good purpose, and that is to reform Christ within you. You have this parental language, which again, for our purposes, is kind of, I mean, from our vantage point, is kind of strange and hard to follow. But he's saying, not only when I'm present with you, but even now as he's writing, he says, my little children, so this is a parental kind of language, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. So he's trying to bring them uh, forth. I mean, it's weird because Paul almost puts himself in the place of the feminine here. But he is laboring to bring them forth. He's in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, which is to say um, he's not trying to make Uh, He's not trying to have children in his own image, but in the image of Christ. Again, this is hard for us to follow, but that seems to be what he's saying, that he's envisioning himself and his labor pains of writing them and trying to argue with them and trying to prove to them as if he's trying to give birth to children, but not children in the image of Paul, children in the image of Christ. Thus, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Then he says again personally in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. All right, so we've got a, uh, a, a very kind of deep 
theological argument made in 3, 1 through 4, 11, uh, largely centering on Abraham, but then also using the frame of the epoch of the law versus the new epoch in Christ. And then here in verses 12 through 20, a really personal appeal based on their mutual love for one another and the relationship that has been built before. And now in verse 21 and following, we launch back into a theological argument, and this one more abstract. So if you think more abstractly, you'll find this one easier to follow. If you think more concretely, you're probably going to find this even harder to follow than the preceding argument, which was more concrete by comparison. Let's pause there. Let's see if you have questions, thoughts, if anything sticks out to you or troubles you. Everybody doing okay? All right. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, Paul has already made this argument in the early part of chapter 3. Look, you want to be under the law? Then what does the law say? You've got to do all of it or you're going to die. So this is Paul revisiting that same theme. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Round two. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, what was his rhetoric? Where were we left? Being sons of Abraham and sons of God. So now Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, if you remember from, this is all Genesis. One by a slave woman, that's Ishmael born of Hagar, remember the slave woman? So one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The free woman, Sarah, and her son, Isaac. Who, by the way, Isaac was the son of promise. You remember that Abraham is described in his old age unflatteringly as as good as dead. <laughs> and Sarah was so old that when God said that they would have a child together, she laughed because, yeah, they were well past that. And Isaac is an onomatopoeia for laughter, in fact, in Hebrew. And so Isaac is laughter, this joy that comes by the ridiculous promise of God to this, not only a barren couple, because Sarah had had no children, but twice barren. She's barren her whole life, and then well past the age of childbearing. So doubly barren. And so God's promise, and you already see that, versus... Hagar is a slave, so she's in the relationship, in the family, by way of what she provides. She's not a natural part of the family. She's there laboriously. And was the son born to her a son of promise? No. It was a son of her own labor and Abraham's own labor, and probably a big, huge familial mistake, and theological mistake at that. But that's, that's what we're comparing and contrasting here. So once more, 23, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, Isaac. 
Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. All right. Again, using the frame that he's used before, we have two covenants. We have a covenant made to Abraham, the covenant of the promise made directly by God that cannot be annulled. And then we have the covenant of Sinai made through various mediators, not directly by God, but angels and Moses. Okay, And that second covenant cannot annul the first. That's the frame in which Paul's had us thinking before. Okay, So when we hear those two covenants, we just want to have that fresh in our mind that that's been the preceding argument. One is from Mount Sinai. Where was the Mosaic covenant given? On Sinai. So now we've got the, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar, or that mountain is Hagar. All right, so what Paul's going to do is stack two different images. And that's the only place where it gets confusing if you're a super concrete thinker, is you're going, what? Um, but if you're a little more abstract, you're able to kind of layer these things in your mind. He's just going to put two stacks, and he's going to put a whole bunch of different images on these two stacks. Okay? So we've got, we've already got Hagar, Ishmael, slavery, Mount Sinai, children of slavery. We've got those all on one stack. Continuing with 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So now we put the present Jerusalem on that stack with Hagar and Sinai and uh, Ishmael and slavery. Why? Because present day Jerusalem is the law and justification before God by keeping the law, circumcision and all the rest. That's all on that stack. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, all right, what's the Jerusalem above? Well, if the Jerusalem below is Jerusalem in its present state, Jerusalem above would be the Jerusalem that God intends Jerusalem to be. It would be in the Johannine sense of the Jerusalem descending from heaven the true city of peace based on the peace won by Christ's shed blood, based on the peace of God's absolution, based on the promise fulfilled in Christ. So now we're going to be building that other stack. On the other stack so far is simply Sarah and Isaac and promise. And now we're going to add to that Jerusalem above, which is free, not slave. That's the other stack, free. So she is, uh, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay. So our mother is Sarah, Jerusalem from above, freedom. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. 
for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All right. Well, who is the barren one who does not bear? Isaac, or uh, is it Sarah or is it Rahab? Why did I just say Rahab? What's her name? Hagar. Thank you, gosh. <laughs> ah, sorry. So, okay. Yeah, it's Sarah. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. That's Sarah. Why? Because she's going to give birth. So, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Parallel verse, Sarah. But, of course, more than Sarah, right? This is, this is in effect, the church. Okay. For the children of the desolate one. Who's the desolate one? The barren one. So, Sarah, your children will be more than those who has a husband. Now, what's complicated about this quotation, this is cited from Isaiah 54, okay? And what's going on in Isaiah 54 is this. The children of the desolate one is Zion after the exile, and the one who has a husband is Zion before the exile, all right? So this is what's going on in the Isaiah text that he's quoted. We don't like this because it adds one more wrinkle and one more challenge and one more thing to wrap your mind around. But that's just the way Paul is doing theology. He's moving very quickly. He hopes you can keep up. And so not only then do we have um, Sarah in this stack of, let's say, let's say Sarah, Isaac, promise, freedom, Jerusalem above, but now we have the barren and desolate one who is rejoicing because her children are going to be more. Let's just leave it there. More. Okay. Zion after the exile, more children. God is going to be gracious after the time of discipline. Okay. Now, all we're going to do with this latter half, the one who has a husband, more than the one who has a husband, is we're just going to add that to the other stack. Okay. So we would. So it looks like, you know, in the same way that it looks like Jerusalem below is the real thing and Jerusalem above is the abstraction. It looks like the woman who has a husband is going to have more offspring than the one who is desolate. So all Paul's doing here is looks can be deceiving on this one. And he's tracing these two lines or these two stacks. All right, so now this is uh, going in 28. He's going to bring this home for us. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So you need to now put yourself in the stack of the barren one, the desolate one, Zion after the exile, Sarah, Jerusalem from above, uh, freedom, promise. You need to put yourself in that stack. You brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, who's that? Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac. So also it is now. 
Now you know what to do with the legal the Judaizers, the legalists who are saying you have to be circumcised. They're over in the bad stack. You're in the good stack. Over in the bad stack, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Now they're persecuting you. Okay, so, so you see, one way to just really keep this all clear is just put them in two stacks and realize where you are and where the bad guys are. All right. So, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Now, quoting from uh, Genesis 21, Cast out the slave woman and her son, Hagar and Ishmael, and the entire stack. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit, there's the key, with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave of Hagar, but of the free woman, Sarah. Okay, so, look, Paul takes us in this frame. Abraham has two sons, you're one son or the other. If you're circumcised and think you have to keep the law, you're a slave and of Hagar, just like the false teachers you instead as Christians who have faith in Christ alone apart from works of the law are Isaac, sons of promise who have faith in the promise. What happened in that story? You've got Abraham and he's got two sons. Ishmael was thrown out. If you're going to be circumcised and joined with Ishmael, you're going to be thrown out. You who would seek to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace, you're going to be thrown out. But if you are sons of the promise like Isaac, then you will abide forever, you will inherit, you will be true sons of Abraham, etc. Okay, understanding his rhetoric as best we can? (laughs) All right, good. It just hit 12. So let's pick up Let's pick up with this thought next week, okay? So if we're this new creation in Christ, if Christ is delivering us from this present evil age, what does that look like? And increasingly, that's the direction Paul's going to take us in as we go into chapter 5 and 6 and close out the epistle. The Lord be with you.